This chapter 13 is the longest uh, section in all of Mark of Jesus' teaching. Longest, it is the longest sermon of Jesus in Mark. It's the second longest sermon of Jesus in the whole Bible. The longest would be the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Mark doesn't have all of that. This is called the Mount of Olives Discourse or the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's about to teach and preach and it covers uh, all of Mark chapter 13 and it is good. But you're gonna see over the next couple weeks and I would really encourage you to be faithful, be committed, do whatever it takes for you to be here because the gospel is about to get much more serious, Mark is. He's gonna deal with things like timing and the second coming of Jesus and judgment and things that we are very concerned about. Today we're gonna look at the first two verses. Mark chapter 13, verses one and two. Let's read. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was not impressed. There's one thing that impresses the Lord Jesus, and that is the glory of his Father in heaven. He has a singular focus. And the rest of this chapter 13 over the next couple weeks is going to show us just how critical and urgent and, 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 and crucial understanding that is for you in your personal life. You, listen to me, at the beginning of this sermon, you must be one who knows the forgiveness of sins through God, who knows the great love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know God in that way. And Jesus is going to be preaching us to that end. In our passage today, just introducing it, because we don't even really get into the sermon yet today, but I wanted to do it this way. I want to give you three, idea, three ideas on the temple. The first is they depart, or he departed from the temple. Departed from the temple. Number two, they were distracted by the temple. And number three, he denounced the temple. Departed, distracted, Denounced, departed from the temple, distracted by the temple, denounced the temple. Now, if you're just reading Mark, you kind of see that he walks out of the walks out of the temple, and it seems like this just this could just be a little transitional statement, like Jesus is is leaving the temple. But I want to remind you of where we're at in the story of Jesus. I wanna remind you that we are now at the very end of the Passion Week, if you will. We're near the ending of Mark. He's about to be betrayed by Judas in the next chapter. He's about to be denied by Peter in the next chapter. He's about to be arrested and beaten and crucified. Jesus is just days, if you will, hours away from the greatest single most biggest event, the worst event in the history of the world. God, the Son of God, will be killed at the hands of lawless men. 
There is nothing, never has been, ever will be, anything as huge and awful as the death of Jesus. And it's just days away. And we read in Mark chapter 13 that he leaves the temple. Not only did he leave the temple, but he left the temple for good forever. Turn back just to chapter 11 and let's follow along. In chapter 11, verse 11, we have the triumphal entry. We remember that, right? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is like the week before, uh, this is like the week before Easter, right? Palm Sunday, y'all know what that is. That's what this is. And in chapter 11, verse 11, it says, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. We know that Jesus would do this. He would go to the temple. The temple is the place where God worshipers, worshipers of God would go and they would worship God there. They would be able to sacrifice there uh, in, in repenting of their sins. The temple was that. Right after that, at chapter 11, verse 12, we remember Jesus cursing the fig tree. And the reason why he cursed the fig tree, you remember the lesson, was that this tree looked like it should be fruitful, but it had no fruit. And Jesus gave an object lesson to what the temple looked like. The temple looked like it should be full of worship or worship to God, but there was actually no worship to God going on there. The fig tree taught us that. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, again the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house? Whose house is the temple? His, his father's. God's house. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. There were issues with what was happening in the temple. The temple was for God. The temple was for worship to God. And we see all of this coming about. Look at chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him and they said, who gave you this authority? They were challenging Jesus, questioning Jesus. They didn't agree with Jesus. They, they opposed him. And it's all about the temple. And it's really not about the temple. It's about what the temple is for. It's about worship. But they didn't fully understand that. So at the beginning of chapter 12, keep following along, Jesus tells this parable about the people in the vineyard who are there who reject the owner of the vineyard, the tenants who are keeping the vineyard, reject the owner of the vineyard. And he says, well, I'll even send my son. Surely they will accept my son, which everybody knows what this parable is talking about, God and his son Jesus. And he sends his son Jesus and they kill him. He's talking about the people who say they know God in the temple, not worshiping God. And then, after that, you remember, starting at verse 13, the Pharisees come and challenge him because they think he's wrong. Then at verse 18, the Sadducees come and challenge him because they think he's wrong. Then at verse 20, the scribes come and challenge him because they think he's wrong. 
wrong. In all of this, you have the leaders of the religious people, the ones who work in and for the temple, the ones who are supposed to be aiding in worship of God, the ones who are supposed to be ministers of God. Those people are opposing Jesus. They're opposing God. And they're challenging him. And then, the very end of this chapter, verse 41 He sat down opposite the treasury, again in the temple, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus sees this as an opportunity to explain, and so he says in verse 43, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In that passage, Jesus lets us know he's not impressed by the temple. He's not impressed by just things that people do in the temple. He's not impressed by rich people putting in big amounts of money in the temple. He's impressed with worship in the temple. That's all Jesus cares about is that his father would be worshiped. And the reason why he is so faithful to us and loves us so much is that he would turn us into true worshipers. If you're here today and you're not really sure why you came, Let me go ahead and tell you now, God longs that your heart and soul would surrender everything to him and worship him from the inside out. God wants you to love him above everything else. God wants you to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. God wants you to bow your knee and confess with your mouth that he is your father in heaven, that Christ Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That is the purpose of your life. That is why God made you. That's why God woke you up today, keeps your heart going. That is the purpose. It is worship to God. And that was the purpose of the temple, worship to God, to help people worship God. And then you get to chapter 13, our passage today, and it says, Jesus came out of the temple. Now, when we began, Mark, I told you that Mark's gospel is faster than everybody else's, right? It's the shortest of the gospels. Matthew's 28 chapters, Luke's 24 chapters, John is 21 chapters, Mark is only 16 chapters, and Mark is always on the go like this. It says, and immediately this happened, immediately this happened, and it's, and it's a quick gospel. It makes us think that Mark wrote his very quickly to get it in circulation so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be spread better. But there's a deeper, more thorough section in the Bible of this very story, the Mount of Olives Discourse. And that is Matthew 23, 24, and 25. You don't have to turn there. But it's telling the same thing from Matthew's account. And Jesus, at this very scene, says this. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple. Did you catch that in verse 38? Look back at 2338. Jesus says to them, see, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus was cleansing the temple, whose house was it? My house. He has just told Jerusalem and all the Jews, your house is now empty. I'm gone. When Jesus departed the temple in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, it was a very symbolic thing that God's glory was gone from there. God's glory is only found in God's people who believe in him by faith. God is not impressed with us for what we do if it is not done from a true and sincere heart and faith. We need to hear that the house of God, the temple there in 2338 of Matthew is now called their house, left to them, and it is empty. Let's not miss how sobering it is when a house is empty. Y'all ever heard of empty nest syndrome? I got one sister, she's three years younger than me and we moved out like 20 years ago. And my mom, 20 years later, still brings up how sad it is that we're gone. Empty nest syndrome. I called Miss Anna Harris last night. Her husband was just buried the day before Friday. I called her just to check on her. And as she started crying, she said, I keep turning to tell Ray something. An empty house can be heavy. Well, it's just heavy personally, you know, when we're just missing our children or missing our spouse. And that hardly even speaks to the magnitude, the volume, if you will, of God saying this temple that is for the worship of your maker, of your good God, your great God and Savior, your Father in heaven, this temple is for his worship and you are not doing that. You've already turned it into a den of robbers. We are gone. And this is what you see happening here when Jesus departed from the temple. Folks, we ought to be very much so concerned that what we say, listen to me, is about God is actually about God. We ought to be convicted and burdened and challenged that if we are about God, then we are truly about God. That if our relationships are about God, then they are truly about God. That if our finances are about God, then they are truly about God. That if our homes and our families and our friendships and our neighbors are about God, that they are truly about God. When we see Jesus departing and saying, your house is empty, we ought to step back and think, oh, 
What if God were to do that to the greens? What if, what if the green household was to become so absorbed with ourselves and, and me and, and Val and kids and stuff and happiness and just things that are all about us that we had so neglected God and, and any lip service we gave to him was just that lip service. It was truly all about us. It wasn't a faithful, dependent, repentant of sin, trusting in Christ, dependent upon him. What if God were to depart from us? Now, I want you to know that we we have all the promises in the world that God is a keeping God and he is our Lord and Savior and our Father in heaven and he will keep us. And so that, by God's grace, will not happen. But I want to give you a picture practically of what is happening here. They, like us, are to be worshipers of God and they weren't. And now we have Jesus leaving and in fact, they're about to kill him. So he departs them rightfully because they didn't worship him. They say they worship him, but they don't. They say they worship his father, but they don't. And they're about to kill him. He departed from the temple. As he departs from the temple now, number two, and this is, if you understand all that I just said, you see why this is such a problem. They were distracted by the temple. They were distracted by the temple. One of the disciples, and it doesn't tell us who. This is a characteristic of Mark. He's always telling us something somebody did, but he rarely tells us who. He doesn't name them. We don't know who said this either. Perhaps Judas, who very soon is about to betray Jesus. Perhaps Judas is so far from understanding the glory of God departing from the temple that He's wrapped up in the material thing, the beauty of a building. The beauty of a building that's likened to a cursed fig tree, he's praising it. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They walk out of the temple. Jesus is on his way out. and He turns to look at the temple and he says, that place is awesome. It is awesome. It was awesome in appearance. But if there's anybody in the world that's not impressed with the outer, it is God. We are often sidetracked and impressed by things that we shouldn't be impressed by, but God is not. He had just said in the verses before, listen, he had just said in the verses before, all those rich people put in all that money giving to the organized system of religion I don't, I'm not impressed with, but those two little pennies, that is worship. He had just said that, meaning I'm not impressed with what you think is impressive. And the disciple says, this place is wonderful. Now the temple was wonderful. Let me just read to you what some of the commentators say about it. In Jesus' day, the temple had already been under construction 50 years, and it was still unfinished. At no place was Herod the Great's obsession with grandeur and permanence more apparent than in the Jerusalem temple. 
Herod, listen to this. We're talking about a massive, beautiful place. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to an esplanade measuring some 325 meters wide by 500 meters long with a circumference of nearly one mile. The immense 35-acre enclosure could accommodate 12 football fields. The southeast corner of the retaining wall hung some 15 stories above the ground that sloped down to the Kidron Valley. The blocks of stone used in construction were enormous. One historian, Josephus, reports that some were 40 cubits, approximately 60 feet in length, a block. The magnitude of the Temple Mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. Another historian goes on and says that from the top of the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus, this scene is taking place, the whiteness of the stones, its gold trim, its gold-covered roof of the temple sanctuary made the temple mount look like a snow-capped mountain, and it was a blinding sight. Many have said that it was so impressive, it was such an impressive building that it looked like you were looking at the sun in all of its glory. It was built to be the place that the world knew is where God's people go to worship God. And it had become many other things than a place of worship. And at this point, now moments away from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the betrayal and arrest Jesus has departed, and this disciple is distracted. He's still impressed by the stones and the buildings. Folks, I want to ask us here today, are you distracted from worshiping God? Are you distracted from believing in Jesus? Now, we could go on and on with all sorts of distractions. There are a lot of good distractions, right? There are some distractions that just happen, right? There are some people who would have been here this morning were they not at the emergency room right now as we speak. That's a distraction, but they can't help that one, right? And sometimes life is just hard and full and heavy and we are distracted. But there are many, many, many other distractions. To make a close parallel, do you get distracted from God based off of the building? Do you choose a church based off the building? Do you get distracted from God based off of how people dress or how they're supposed to dress? Do you get distracted from God based off the music of what it's like or what it's not like? You know, the devil is brilliant at what he does. He's very, very crafty and good at scheming and he loves to get us distracted, does he not? Listen to this warning from J.C. Ryle. He says, we shall do well to remember this. 
We are naturally inclined to judge things by the outward appearance, like children who value poppies more than corn. We are too apt to suppose that where there is a stately ecclesiastical building and a magnificent ceremonial car of stone and painted glass, fine music and gorgeously dressed ministers, that there must be some real religion there. And yet there may be no religion at all. It may be all form and show, and it may just all be appealing to the senses. This is what I like. There may be nothing to satisfy the conscience there. There may be nothing there to cure the heart, the sinful heart. It may prove on inquiry that Christ is not even preached in that stately building, and the word of God is not expounded there. The ministers may perhaps be utterly ignorant of the true gospel and the worshipers may still be dead in their trespasses and sins. We need not doubt that God sees no beauty in such a building as this. In church, there can be distractions. It may be that you're here today and you've not even thought about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be that you're here today trying to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are other people sitting in your midst that you know are not focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a distraction to you. And it may be that our church is not focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so this outside community, this 40118 of Fairdale, Kentucky, and the surrounding Louisville is fully aware that this is a whole lot of, uh, of show going on, but a true heartfelt love for God, love for people, sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not genuine. And all of those would be distractions, distractions here, distractions there. And I want to remind you that we must be a people who love the Lord our We must be a people who can openly, truthfully, humbly admit that we are sinners and that we need to be forgiven of our sins. It must be our prayer regularly, oh Father, have mercy upon us. There are distractions. People are distracted from God because of our distractions. While we're at things that distract us from God, let me mention, I'm even sick to my stomach over what I'm seeing on the news yesterday happening in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so much of that, you know, is happening in the name of God. White people and white supremacists and people who think they're better than other people based off of their skin color. Folks, this being done in the name of God is sickening. It's horrible. And we are to be the people who understand that's not our God. At times it makes me ashamed to be a white man. At times it makes me ashamed to be an evangelical because of all of these things being lumped together in the same category. God is passionate about his glory among people and the Bible teaches us that every person of every color, of every language, from any place, with any education, with any amount of money is loved by God. And anybody that knows God and loves God should love people the same. This is sickening. And I pray that First Baptist Church of Fairdale would hate it. And we all know that it's a reality around us. 
And racism is still very common. I got a new friend. He moved to Fairdale less than a year ago, and he's Asian. He's fully Asian. He just came, he just came to his America. It's the first time here in America. He speaks perfect English. His English is awesome. And he's a new friend of mine, and he loves basketball. And we've played basketball together. I mean, he's a great guy. And he came to me, and he's younger than me. And he came to me and asked if I could help him find a job. And I love old Jim over here that owns Dairy Queen. And I went to him. I said, man, I got a guy who needs a job. It'd be great. I think he'd be good for you. He even lives close enough that he'll walk. And I guarantee you, he'll always be there. And Jim hired him. And it wasn't three weeks later that Jim that owns Dairy Queen called me up and said, Josh, I just want to say thank you, man. This guy's as good as anybody I've got. This guy's awesome. Thank you. He's always here. He'll stay late. He works hard. And I stopped by there just the other night to pick me up a blizzard. I said, how's, how's my buddy doing? He said, Josh, I'm not kidding you. He's awesome. He said, but you know what? There's still so many knuckleheads in Fairdale that can't get past his skin color. He told me that. My friend, one of the best workers Dairy Queen has, and you know what hurt me so bad? Is that nearly everybody in Fairdale wants to say they love God or they believe in him or they're giving due diligence to him. Baloney. There's an allegiance that goes to God that says, it is God's rule that governs my heart. And I want you to know that sometimes racism and sometimes hate are a huge distraction. Certainly a distraction in those people's heart. There's no way that the people marching last night just came up off their face, bowing down, seeking the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There's no way that that's what drove that. There's no way they just got out of church or reading the Bible being fed by that. There's no way. And if we will get our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of God and not be distracted, then we could actually go and live for God in the world. Albeit flawed as we are because we are so prideful and sinful. But church, may it never be that we are distracted from what the Bible tells us. This is why we're here on Sunday mornings. This is why we're committed to being here on Sunday mornings. And this is why even after such a heavy week, I did funeral Tuesday, funeral Thursday, funeral Friday. This is why I couldn't wait to be here today because the word of God is the answer for us. The audacity to know that the Lord Jesus is about to be crucified and this disciple who's been with him for three straight years looks around and says, man, this building's awesome. This thing's wonderful. Look at those blocks. He's distracted by the need. He's distracted by worship. Folks, don't get distracted. Life's about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. That's why I'm so thankful for Mr. Ray Harris. He taught me that. Ray was one of the strongest, toughest men. He was married to a Marine. He was a military man himself. He's done everything. Ray got like frostbite or something on his feet. Listen to this. Ray got like frostbite or something on his feet. And messed his toes up so bad that Ray couldn't walk. But if he didn't walk, his family, he couldn't work and he couldn't support his family. So Ray took shoes, boots, and cut off the whole, the whole tip of them. The whole tip of his shoes cut them out. And it was the winter time too. And he wore his boots all winter long with no top on his shoe and the family says that every day when he would get home from work, his sock would be full of blood. He'd have to take them off and soak them immediately just to be able to do it again the next day until they finally got that stuff better. Ray was awesome. 
But Ray got cancer a few years ago, and it started killing him. The doctors told him that it would kill him a whole lot faster than it did, and Ray was quick to tell everybody, yeah, I know I probably should be dead, but the Lord's just keeping me around for some reason. But you know what Ray told us? And I said this at the funeral Friday, too. Ray told us that God allowing him to have cancer was the biggest blessing in his life. Why? Because it made Ray turn to Jesus. It made him bow down to God. It made him say, God, I've got nothing apart from you. It made Ray not be distracted. It made Ray say, life's about God. It made Ray deal with people thinking life's about God. And Ray became this outgoing, before he couldn't talk, before he couldn't pray, before he was this nervous type of guy. And it made him this Jesus-following, committed man. Here they were distracted by the temple. The beauty of the temple, and it was beautiful. Jesus departed from the temple. They were distracted by the temple. And then lastly, he denounced the temple. It's kind of awkward. You've got a disciple praising the beauty of it. And then verse two, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's like being with a tour guide, and there were probably 12 of them, And the tour guide's telling you all this, and you try to say something that you think would be a cool statement in the tour, and it's actually very offensive. And the tour guide turns around and says, you like what you see? It's all about to fall. Jesus denounced the temple. Now remember, this is the very temple he just fought for when he cleansed it. This is the very temple that he said, don't you know that the scriptures say, my house? And he denounced it. And he says, here's what's going to happen. This is a prediction. This is a prophecy. You know, a lot of people doubt the word of God. This is a clear and true. Y'all, this isn't like super duper long time ago and so you're not really sure if it happened. This is less than 2,000 years ago. This is documented history. You can travel right on over to the Middle East right now and you can see the remains of this. Jesus says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That gigantic temple that I just described to you, Jesus predicted it's about to go. And sure enough, about 40 years later, the Romans came in, led by Titus, the Roman general. He built, listen, he built up wood scaffolding all the way around it. They piled on everything flammable on the wood scaffolding. They killed, listen to me, they killed a million Jews in the ramsacking. They killed a million Jews. They set the whole temple ablaze and the whole thing crumbled. And this temple right here that Jesus left was gone. And Jesus told them that it was going to happen, just like the Bible tells us many things that have happened and then they came true. And Jesus told them it was going to happen. And at A.D. 70, true history, it happened. Jesus knew. You don't have to turn there, but listen to me real quickly from Luke 19. Very same passage. 
And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Listen to this. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Matthew tells us it's gonna happen. Mark tells us it's gonna happen. Luke tells us it's gonna happen. The story of Jesus telling us it's gonna happen. And it happened. One commentator says the stunning nature of Jesus' prediction for the great size of the buildings and walls of Jerusalem and the massive nature of stones used in them gave the impression of permanence. This building was so gigantic, it was nearly a mile in circumference, it was so huge, nobody ever thought that we're gonna be overtaken, but they were. It did not look like impending disaster, but it was. Commentator Edwards says the disciples dropped their jaws over the beautiful building blocks, but Jesus dismisses them as stumbling blocks. The temple is to teach us that God is serious about his worship. The church is to be serious about worshiping God. And we come to God by faith through the work that Jesus has done. Their hope and salvation, listen to me, like ours, is not based off of any physical stones. It's not based off physical stones that are still standing somewhere for worship or are not standing now for worship. Theirs like ours, and here is the whole heart of all of these chapters, is in the cornerstone. Turn back, if you will, to chapter 12. The cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. Chapter 12, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus. The reason why chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 leading into the rest of the gospel, the reason why all of this story that I've talked about now for the last half hour is going on is because Jesus is God's son that died to bring us to God. And anything done in the name of God without Jesus isn't really done in the name of God. Any worship for God that we think is worship to God that is not through faith in Jesus is not worship to God. So here Jesus is called the stone, the cornerstone that was rejected. He departed from the temple. They were distracted by the temple Jesus denounced the temple. Do you know Jesus? Do you love God? Are you confident that all of your sins are forgiven because of Jesus? Do you have about you a sincere love for God? 
Is God your number one? Are you walking by faith? Is your life committed to him? Anything less than that is not of God. May we be real Christians. May we be true worshipers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beginning of the Olivet Discourse that we will get into over the next couple weeks. Father, thank you for Jesus helping us understand worship by way of the temple. Father, if we're here today distracted and not worshiping, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. We ask for that. Father, I pray that you would convict us of our sins, even, even the sin of not worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.